All right, Psalm 106 is where we pick up this evening. You'll notice Psalm 106 is the final psalm in book four of what, in the book of Psalms as a total, we have five separate books, it seems, uh, that are given to us, broken up. Psalm 107 begins the book five, or the final book, all the way through Psalm 150, and Psalm 106 and 107 are some longer psalms, then we kind of get back into some shorter ones here, but... Psalm 106 records the nation of Israel's history once again, even as Psalm 105 did. But the distinction here, Psalm 105 really focused, we saw, on the faithfulness of God through the history of the nation of Israel. Psalm 106 kind of shows us the other side of the coin, and it shows us the unfaithfulness of humanity, the sins, the failures, the weakness of the people of God, the nation of Israel, Though God was being faithful to them, how many times repeatedly they were unfaithful to the Lord uh, and made many mistakes, and yet God continued to be merciful and gracious to them. So it sort of shows us the human side of the history of the nation of Israel as God's people. The psalm begins, Psalm 106, by saying, praise the Lord, and that's basically the translation of that word hallelujah, praise the Lord. And you'll notice the psalm begins that way with hallelujah. Uh, And as it comes to the end, we'll see that same refrain once again, hallelujah or praise the Lord. The psalmist declares, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and for his mercy endures forever. So many times we're encouraged to express gratitude to God for many different reasons. And notice it doesn't always have to be particularly what God is doing in our lives that is circumstantially what our current situation is that we're going through in our journey on this earth, because you know the Bible is very clear that, as the New Testament says, that through many tribulations we'll enter the kingdom of God. That is, as we navigate through this world that is under the curse, and it's a fallen world with sinful people and the plague and the problems that sin has caused in humanity, uh, Jesus said, in this world, John 16, he said, you will have tribulation but take take heart he said for i've overcome the world but jesus did promise that while in this world we will have tribulation that it's an inescapable part of the process of living in this life and whether you love god with your heart soul mind and strength and you serve him and you walk in god's will and you do everything right which none of us do but if that were possible you'll still have tribulation in this world because it's a part of the journey struggles and sickness and suffering and hardships and heartaches and disappointments and people wounding us and it's just a part of the journey of course god works all those things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose and we develop character through that we we learn deep spiritual lessons through those hard and fiery trials but we don't only just thank god for what's happening situationally or circumstantially sometimes we just thank god for who he is in his very character and in his nature. And if you can't thank God or I can't find a reason to be grateful to God for what's going on in my circumstances, then we can always be thankful to God to be able to just appreciate his wonderful nature, that he is good. Maybe life is bad, but God's good. 
And if you know God, then you have the goodness of God at work in your life. And it's going to continue to work in your life and bring an ultimate hope and a future and a glorious end to whatever you're going through. That good God is going to work all things for your good, even the difficulties and the hardships, even your own mistakes. God can work in his goodness, all things for the good. And as well, we could be thankful that his mercy endures forever, that he doesn't just have a little bit of mercy but his mercy endures, that is, it carries on continuously. And notice, how long does his mercy carry on forever? We're never going to exhaust his mercy. And again, his mercy is the fact that he does not give us what we do deserve as far as judgment or punishment or letting us suffer to degrees because of our own mistakes, that God often gives us the restrained version. Though we may still experience consequences or hardships or maybe even a degree of discipline, the Lord disciplines those he loves, and we learn through hardship and discipline not to repeat mistakes that we've made. But even in the midst of those things, it's, it's the restrained person. It's his mercy, and you can't exhaust his mercy because it endures forever. How wonderful that is to know that that is not ever something you will exhaust or I will exhaust. And that's very important, the goodness of God and his mercy enduring because in these verses, we're going to see there was a lot of failure and a lot of sin going on in the nation of Israel. Just like as we walk our life, we see there's still a lot of failure and sin and mistakes that we make as people as well. He says, verse 2, who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord and who can declare all his praise? So, who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? That's a great, great question, because honestly, the only people who can truly give testimony to something are those who have had a firsthand experience. So if there was an uh, auto accident uh, over in Linwood today on such and such a street corner, I wasn't there. So I really can't give if they called me as a testimony or an eyewitness to give testimony to utter what happened that would be invalid because I didn't experience it. I didn't see it. But if you were there and you experienced it, that's called a credible testimony, a credible eyewitness, someone who's actually experienced something themselves. And the Bible says, who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Well, only the people of the Lord who've experienced the power of God, the work of God, you and I are the greatest witnesses and the ones who should be giving testimony of the mighty acts of the Lord because A, we know them because we see them in the word of God and we can declare what we see in the word of God that it's true and tell people of what the scriptures tell us about the mighty acts that God's done and a God who changes not, as well as there are mighty acts that God has done in every one of our lives in this room. And it gives us opportunity to bear witness to that and to declare his mighty acts of the way God answered prayer, how the Lord did something marvelous in our life in different ways from time to time. We can declare his mighty acts, but the Bible says, though we can declare his mighty acts, who can declare all his praise? The idea is nobody. You cannot exhaust declaring all of God's praise. In fact, for all of eternity, we'll be declaring his praise. The idea is that's how worthy he is of praise and honor and exaltation. We'll spend all of eternity declaring his praise, praising the Lord, and it will something that will never ultimately fulfill the full obligation of declaring all of his praise. That's just how worthy he is of the expression of our gratitude and praise. He says, verse three, blessed are those who keep justice, that is, who keep doing what's right and fair, and he who does righteousness at all times. So those who do what is just 
who do what is fair, equitable. The idea is those who keep justice, no partiality, just doing what's just, doing what's righteous at all times. Notice verse 3 says there's a blessing attached to the life of the person that does that. So if you want a, a blessing from the Lord, you want to live a blessed life, well, the Bible says just keep doing what's right at all times. When, when you don't know what to do, just do what is right. That's typically the best thing to do because usually that's not real complicated. It may be hard, but it's usually not rocket science. You know, I say many, many times when I'm talking to people or in counseling situations exhaustively, doing the right thing usually isn't complicated. It's just hard. It's just hard. It's usually not rocket science what the right thing to do is in given situations. It's usually pretty evident. It's usually not complicated. It's just hard to do the right thing. But nonetheless, that's where obedience and faith comes in. And Lord, I am just going to do what is right and trust you with the rest. You know, even in talking about such things, it reminds me of what the psalmist declared in Psalm 37, where there he says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. The idea is the evildoer. Don't be jealous of such because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. So again, the Bible teaches us when we don't know what to do, we see evil prospering. We see wrong things happening and and we're just kind of perplexed and maybe we're stressed out or we're going through a hard time and we're anxious and upset. The Bible just says, just trust the Lord and just keep doing what's good. Just keep doing what's right. You know what that is, as he says in our psalm tonight. Just keep doing righteousness at all times, and God will bless that, and you'll experience the blessing of the Lord. He says, verse 4 in Psalm 106, Remember me, O Lord, with your favor. The idea there is God's blessing, his favors, grace bestowed that you have toward your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation and that I may glory with your inheritance. So the psalmist here calling God to take note and to become involved, to to send forth his favor, the idea of his help, his divine blessing, to put his favor upon him, asking that, Lord, please, I want to experience your favor upon me. And I love that sense of wanting an encounter with God. He describes in verse four there, where he says, visit me with your salvation. Again, salvation speaking of just deliverance in a general sense. We know it in a, of course, an eternal sense, salvation ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ. But God brought salvation to his people in many different ways all throughout the scripture. You know, God can bring in a sense salvation generally, the deliverance from Egypt or, you know, salvation and deliverance when, You know, Daniel was cast into the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed into the fiery furnace. There are lots of ways God can show up and bring deliverance and bring salvation. And whenever that happens, the idea there is God is intervening. God's stepping into the situation to show his favor and in such a way is showing up. The idea is showing up by his presence with a powerful visit 
And that experience brings about salvation or deliverance in some way. And I love that God is that personal, even though he's such an incredibly powerful God. I mean, here is almighty God, king of kings, Lord of lords. And yet the word of God reveals to us that though this God of great power can do all things and incredible things, yet still he visits his people. And he actually comes and he, in a personal way, engages and gets involved and provides a, a visitation, personal experiences where we can have our own encounter with God, like, like Saul of Tarsus, right? Saul of Tarsus was someone who could say, Jesus visited me with his salvation. I mean, you remember Saul of Tarsus, he was, you know, hateful towards Christ and Christianity and the church and was just doing everything he could to go antagonistic, to go the other way. I mean, he wasn't just apathetic about Christianity. He hated Christianity. And what did Jesus do? Jesus personally encountered him brighter than the noonday sun, knocked him in a sense, you know, off of his feet and had him in a place where he literally realized, Lord, who are you? And Jesus visited him with his salvation. He had a personal supernatural experience with the Lord. He had his own personal encounter. And I love that idea there. Lord, visit me. Visit me with your salvation. And I think he's done that for each of us who've truly come to know the Lord. We've had our own personal encounter where the Lord just kind of finally showed up and made it all real to us. Made himself personal and made it evident and clear to us where we finally experienced his salvation as far as coming to Christ. But I think he wants to continue to have us ask him, Lord, come visit us. Visit me with your presence, Lord. I want to experience and have an encounter with you that I may see the benefit, he says. I want to see the benefits, Lord, of how you come and visit your chosen ones. Verse six, he says, very honestly now, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity and we have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of, of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Now notice this starts now to rehearse the, the encounters of the nation of Israel as they had their own historical experiences. And here the psalmist, very interesting, as he's writing these things, Years and years down the road, he speaks in the sense of unification like he actually was there with the early fathers of the nation of Israel and really takes personal ownership and involvement in the sins of the nation. Though probably the writer of the psalm did not personally participate in those sins, right, back in Egypt, back at the Red Sea, but yet he's saying here, we have sinned. With our fathers, we have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. You know, something very wonderful when there's kind of not that blame shifting. They have sinned. They've done wickedly. They've caused the problems. It's all their fault. But when, when somebody is able to kind of just put themselves into the picture and say, God, we've failed. We've failed as a nation. God, we have failed as a family. God, we have failed as the church. God, we are guilty of the sins and things that we're allowing and we're tolerating. Lord, we together, and again, there's something about that I think that's just very humble and contrite in heart. We have sinned, we've committed iniquity and done wickedly. You can tell in that confession there, there's no kind of glossing over the, the grossness of sin. I mean, the, the terms that are used, iniquity, we've done wickedly. Again, taking full ownership and just calling sin 
for what it is. I think of what Joseph said when he was resisting the advancements of Potiphar's wife. And he said, how can I, can I sin against the Lord and do this great wickedness? Again, that was Joseph's attitude towards these advancements, encouraging him to enter into sexual immorality. He, he had a proper view of sin. His perspective was, how can I sin against God? And to do that would be a great wickedness. He didn't say, oh, it would be a love affair. It, would be, it was a great wickedness. And I think sometimes one of the best things to help ensure our overcoming temptation towards sin is to see sin properly, to see it in a right perspective. It, it gives us that attitude that we want to hate what God hates and understand it for what it is. And here he calls it iniquity and great wickedness. And what he's referring to really was just an attitude of unbelief and not following in the will of the Lord and trusting God to work that the people of Israel committed as they were coming out of Egypt and right at the border of the Red Sea. That's the events he's referring to here. But yet he calls it iniquity and a great wickedness. He says, when our fathers in Egypt didn't understand your wonders, referring to all the powerful plagues. Remember, God did all the plagues and showed his power mightily as he was bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and then when they got there to the Red Sea, he refers to verse 7, how they rebelled there at the Red Sea. And what he's referring to is the account in Exodus 14. Well, remember, they get right up to the border of the Red Sea as God's been delivering them. He's just shown his powerful works in incredible ways, multiple times through all the plagues. He gets them out of Egypt. They get there to the Red Sea. And then there they are at the Red Sea. And then all of a sudden they realize they're now being pursued by Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. And it seems that they're kind of hemmed in. There's, there's, you know, mountainous, you know, ranges sort of on both sides of them. It's hard to go to the right or to the left. They have the Pharaoh and his Egyptian army breathing down their neck, coming towards them, changing their mind, threatening to attack them. And they have the Red Sea in front of them. And you remember what happens in Exodus 14, right away they start complaining of what was going on. And they start saying to Moses, is it because there wasn't graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to be killed and to die in this wilderness? I mean, we, we could have just been buried right outside our own house. I mean, we could have just been buried by our loved ones. And you brought us out here to just be humiliated and to die in, in the midst of this wilderness and to be put to death out here as the Egyptians pursue us. And, and God ultimately, through Moses, tells the people to do what? He said, stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord. And he says, the battle doesn't belong to you. And, and it's in that moment, of course, that God saw that they were thinking that God would take them part way, And almost as if as they got on the end of the branch, God was going to saw off the branch behind them. <laughs> and God saw that as rebellion. Notice he says, they rebelled by the sea. The way they were rebelling was basically unbelief. They were not believing that God could do what was necessary to work in their situation. They partially began obeying God. They started walking towards and what was the will of God, God bringing them out of their past and about to bring them into the glorious future and things he had for them in front of them. And God started working. They started moving and they started walking out to the edge of the branch. And all of a sudden they said, oh, we, we see what's going to happen here. God just walked us out on the edge of the branch and now he's going to cut it off behind us. And he's just going to let us be destroyed and it's all going to fall apart. and We're going to fail. And, and God saw that as rebellion in their hearts because God says you're rebelling against 
trusting me. What are you doing? I've shown you my power. I've brought you this far. I'm going to finish the process. You know, the book of Hebrews refers to, and I've always remembered this term in Hebrews 3, it talks about an evil heart of unbelief. That's strong terms. An evil heart of unbelief. Often we think, oh, an evil heart of this, that we think of all these other sins. And God says an evil heart of unbelief. And see, here's why. Because God's trustworthy, right? Is that not true? I mean, God is incredibly credible. I could see not trusting maybe your supervisor at work because maybe they're not always credible. (laughs) Maybe they don't always follow through. I could see not trusting another person because they don't fulfill their promises or keep their word. But it's really kind of, in a sense, almost an insult if we genuinely think about it to not trust God. God has never given me a genuine reason not to trust him. He's never truly given any of us a genuine reason not to trust him. So when we don't trust him, it is an act of sort of an evil heart of rebellion within us to somehow say, God, I just there's no way you can do that. It's just not possible, Lord, or, or I, just, I just don't see how you're going to be faithful or how you're going to get me through this. And, and it's almost, it becomes an insult to God for who he is and in his nature that we instead at times need to not think about the way that we're processing something mentally or the way that we're feeling and just say, God, I don't know how, but I'm going to stand still until I see how you're going to make a way where there is no way. And isn't that what God did with the Red Sea? He made a way where there was absolutely no way forward. And he made a way where there had never been a way before. God did something unique. And here he speaks of the sin and the failure, how it began with this unbelief. Verse 8, and here's the mercy of God. Notice, nevertheless, God saved them for his namesake. Notice, it's not always even just for our reputation, for God's own reputation. For his namesake, he still saved the people of God. He opened the Red Sea and allowed the Egyptians to be put away from pursuing them, that he might make his mighty power known. See how God wants to make known his power? He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up miraculously. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. And again, led them through the depths as through the wilderness. The idea there is, again, the the miracle was on many levels. It wasn't just that God parted the waters. But again, if you've ever walked out into the ocean or into a lake, I mean, typically the, the, the ground and the muddy muck underneath, it's usually not real stable, right? It's not like solid ground when you would walk through the woods or walk through the wilderness. Instead, it would be muddy and chariot wheels and animals and people walking. They would get all stuck and they wouldn't be able to pass through. So God not only parted the waters miraculously, but then he made solid, stable ground, underneath them as they were able to walk through the ideas in the same way that they could walk right through the wilderness god made a sure footing a sure path underneath them and he saved them verse 10 from the hand of him who hated them that's referring to pharaoh and the egyptians god delivered his people from those who hated him that should be a good encouragement to us pharaoh as an evil world ruler and egypt as a picture of a type of the world and the world system which oftentimes hates us as jesus said john 15 that the world hates you and i because it hated him and because we're connected to him and there are going to be those who hate us for being faithful followers of christ but you know let, let them be haters the wonderful thing is the lord can save us <laughs> from those who hate us he can find ways to deliver us people may have hatred or animosity towards us 
Don't let that sway you. Just continue to keep doing what's right and trust the Lord with your reputation. And and, and the Lord can deliver you and I from the hand of those who hate us because he redeemed them as well, notice, from the hand of the enemy. And their enemy was natural. Our enemy is oftentimes supernatural, but he can redeem and rescue us from the hand of the enemy of our soul, the devil, so he doesn't ruin our lives. Verse 11, the waters covered over their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. So God orchestrates this powerful deliverance after they weren't worthy of it because they weren't trusting him, but God didn't punish them or treat them as their sins deserved, right? They failed God. They didn't believe. God still did a mighty miracle. God still powerfully worked in their situation graciously for them. And at the end of it, verse 12, they believe his words. They sing his praise. They're worshiping the Lord. Verse 13, look how quickly they become fickle. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Take notice of that. They did not wait for his counsel. Boy, that is a common mistake that we all can make where we don't wait for God's counsel. We go off of the counsel of other people. We go off of our own ideas. Proverbs 3 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, keep acknowledging him and he'll direct your paths. And so many a times, one of the ways we can be quick to err and to make mistakes is we don't wait for God's counsel. God wants to counsel you. God wants to speak to you. His word will counsel you. His spirit will counsel you. God will work through other godly people. If you seek godly counsel and godly wisdom, not worldly counsel, but, but seek counsel from people who know and love the Lord and love you that are going to give you godly counsel. And God will give you direction and counsel as he will me for our lives. But they didn't wait for his counsel and they acted instead in their feelings. Have you heard that word? In their feelings, in their desires, their impulses, their ideas, their frustrations, their disappointments, their, their dissatisfactions. Because it says, notice, they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and they tested God in the desert. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. So this is referring to, of course, what happened where, remember, God every day was supplying manna from heaven to keep his people sustained in the wilderness, right? Even after they rebelled against God, they didn't go into the promised land for 40 years. God every day daily provide daily bread. Literally, we saw just in our verses last time, Psalm 105 verse, what was it, uh, 40, he satisfied them with the bread of of heaven. Other translation and other places in the Old Testament refer to it as angels' food. So every day, God was giving them bread from heaven, angels' food. Every day, He was supplying for them, putting the man on the ground. They'd go in, they'd gather it. You know, even had a degree of taste to it. It says it was like coriander with honey. So again, God could have just made it totally bland, but he even put a little bit of, you know, enjoyable taste to it. And it was sustaining them, and God was providing for them. But then what happened? They became dissatisfied. They got tired of the manna. Oh, is this every day, same menu. Every day, it's just angels' food, angels' food, bread from heaven, bread from heaven. 
Is there anything? And they began to complain and their, their desires and their lusts and cravings and their dissatisfaction and their discontentment as human beings, which we all struggle with because we're human and we're sinful and we're selfish and we're weak in our flesh. They started lusting in the wilderness and testing God. Is this the best you can do? Is this all we have? We have this every single day. And ultimately, as they began to complain, and Moses always was trying in the middle, sort it out between the people and God, God ultimately remember, sent them quail. They wanted some meat. So God sent quail to come, and probably they were so you know, craving and longing for what they wanted rather than what God had given, and they wanted what they wanted, and they wanted it now, that probably as soon as that quail came, I wonder in some ways if part of the problem is they didn't even prepare it properly, cook it properly, and they just started gorging themselves with that meat and that quail, so much to where it says it was coming out of their nostrils, and then they all started getting sick. And there's a great reminder that, that we don't want to test God and force God to give us what we want because oftentimes that may not be really what's best for us ultimately. But yet sometimes in our lusting, in our craving, in our desiring, in our impulsive desires, we want what we want and we can get demanding. This is what I want, God. I don't want what you want. I want what I want. We may not say that out loud, but that's really what's happening in our head. What's happening in our hearts is we want what we want because we think it's what's best for us or it's what we just desire like them. It's just the desire of what we want. And sometimes God actually as a lesson will to a degree say, okay, I won't deprive you of what you want. If that is what, if you truly want what you want, I'll, I'll allow you to have what you want. But I also am not going to hold back the consequences of what that's going to bring into your life. So sometimes as a lesson, like with a parent with a child, I used to tell my wife on occasion with the girls when she would often try and be more protective, I would say it's called reality discipline. Do I agree with that decision they want to make? No, but they're old enough. We're going to let them make that decision, and then I'm also not going to hold back the consequence they're going to experience for that decision because that will probably be a better teacher for them than me just shielding and putting them in a bubble all the time. And so once in a while it was reality discipline. Here's what I think, but I'm going to let you make your own decision, and you give them an opportunity to make some decisions, and, and, but you also don't hold back the consequence. And sometimes God will do that. Sometimes God, in his love and his fatherly wisdom, will say, if you're going to be demanding, 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 I'll give you your request. I'll let you have what you want. It's not what I think is best for you. It's not even what I wanted for you, but I'll allow you to have what you want. But he says, I'm also not going to hold back the consequences that are attached to you getting what you want out of your own craving or desire of what the flesh wants, because this was the problem. They, it was what the flesh wanted. It wasn't what the Spirit of God was truly wanting to give what was best for them. And notice the result. He sent leanness to their soul. They got what they wanted, but they weren't satisfied. And boy, do we not all learn that lesson one or two or a few times in our life where we may get what we want, and we realize it ultimately just leads to emptiness or it leads to regret. And a leanness comes into our spiritual life. That's a leanness to their soul. The idea is that it caused their soul to struggle spiritually. They got what they wanted in the flesh, but it caused their soul to struggle within. And that's a great reminder from this lesson that they went through here that it led to dissatisfaction and just further difficulties. We always don't want to be demanding before God, because sometimes worst case scenarios, he may give to us what we want. That's what Romans chapter one is all about. When you read Romans chapter one, it talks about how God gave them over. Even in the area of 
practicing of homosexuality and the destructive benefits. God gave them over to their own perverse desires. It wasn't God's plan. But when people perversely wanted to take things outside of God's design, male and female, it says God gave them up. And God said, that's not the way I intended. But, but if your flesh is craving that, God gave them over. But it was, it was consequences that came with that. And Romans 1 describes that same thing on a New Testament level. Verse 16 says, and when they then envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram and a fire was kindled in their company and the flame burned up the wicked. So here this is referring to Numbers chapter 16. Remember the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram where they became envious of Moses and Aaron's leadership. And it says they rallied together about 250 other leaders and they began to complain. Oh, is the hand of God just upon you? And why do you think the anointing of the Lord is upon you? And, and all of us have a degree of leadership and ministry ability too. And, and, and why do you think you should be the ones who are sort of you know, in charge and God can use us? And they started complaining and sort of coming against the, the God-ordained leadership and ultimately Notice it says there, verse 16, it really was just precipitated by envy. It wasn't a justified concern as if they were doing something wrong. It was just a perverse envy that they wanted the position. They wanted the role. They wanted the authority. And this corruption came over their hearts, and they started to complain and started stirring up division. And the Bible says in Proverbs 6 that God hates those who sow discord and cause division. And ultimately, God dealt very strongly, literally, one of the rare occasions, literally, the earth opened up and swallowed them. <laughs> that was the way God dealt with that. I don't know, but I don't want to cause division if that's going to happen. God opened up the earth and literally swallowed them down into it to remove them. Again, that's a strong reminder of how God very severely deals with troublemakers. Never good to be a troublemaker. Best to be a problem solver, not a problem starter. Verse 19 says, and they made a calf in Horeb. Of course, this is referring to the golden calf event. Remember when Aaron failed, Moses was taking a long time to come down from the mountain. And so the people began to get discontent. And where's Moses? He's been gone forever. He's said he was going to seek God. I don't know that prayer meetings lasting a little bit longer than most prayer meetings do. What's taken so long? Maybe he's abandoned his post and, and we need to, to, to do something here. And so Aaron in his weakness caved in to the people rather than being a strong leader. He let the democratic voice of the congregation suggest to him some ideas. And ultimately he took their gold and threw it in the fire. And what? Well, lo and behold, a calf jumped out. Of course, that wasn't what happened, right? But that was kind of the, the idea when he later on got re reproved for that. I just don't know what happened. This calf just came out. We, we just threw some gold in there. But they made a calf. God says they made it. It wasn't an accident. They chose to do it. And they worshiped the molded image. Thus, they changed their glory into an image of an ox that eats grass. And they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Notice the word forgot there doesn't mean they couldn't remember. The word forgot literally means to choose to set something aside so that you don't see it. The idea is not to pay attention. It wasn't as if they had amnesia. That's not the idea. You can't watch God do all the powerful miracles he does and then somehow have amnesia and go, now, didn't we used to worship somebody? I mean, I, I thought there was somebody. That's not the idea. The idea there is in their conscience, they suppress the truth. They chose not to remember. They set aside and ignored what they knew to be right 
who had done great things. Notice God, their savior. I love that term there, God, their savior, the very God who we sin against, right? All the different ways, this chapter, the very God who we sin against becomes our savior. He doesn't just provide salvation. He literally becomes our savior, God, our savior, who came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh to become our savior. What an amazing thing. Wondrous works, he says, verse 22, in the land of Ham and the awesome things that God did, verse 22, by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had Moses, his chosen one, had not, excuse me, Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach, that is, in the gap, to turn away God's wrath, lest he destroy them. So he's referring to the events there in Exodus 32. Remember, as the people make the golden calf, as Moses is coming back down with the tablets of stone, becomes evident to Moses, God reveals to him the people had entered into this gross idolatry and all of this perverse harlotry and this activity that was going on and God's just wrath against their sin and rebellion. God said, that's it, Moses. I'm going to destroy them through you. I'm going to establish a brand new nation. I'm just going to start all over. I can fulfill my messianic promise still. And he basically indicated that he was going to do away with his wrath, just judge the people because of their sin and orchestrate a grand, a brand new work through Moses And Moses began, remember, as it says here, his chosen one, to stand before the Lord and before the people as a mediator, an intercessor in the gap, in the breach. He stood before and he began to intercede on behalf of the people with God, saying, Lord, these are your people. And Lord, you love them. And you've made covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And and Lord, if you destroy these people, then Lord, the the other nations are going to mock you. And they're going to say, you're not a real or a powerful God. You couldn't fulfill your promises for your glory, Lord. Don't destroy them. Lord, I don't need a new nation after me. Just, Lord, for your glory and your reputation's sake, show yourself faithful. Find a way, Lord. And ultimately, says, the Lord relented and he turned away his wrath and he didn't judge. Why? Because of Moses' intercession and prayer, God did something powerful. And, 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 and there was something turned of the wrath of God being turned away. Now, Let me just say something. A lot of times people read that story in the Bible and they make the mistake of thinking that God's acting like a hothead and Moses, the chosen one, the intercessor, he stood in the gap. Oh, Moses, he is so godly. He stood in the breach. He turned away the wrath of God with his powerful prayers. And there are many people who would love to take that glamour and that glory and act like their powerful, potent, spiritually anointed prayers are so wonderful. They just turn the power of God and do wonderful things because they have a supernatural power like a superhero. They can command and claim it and call it, and God does it. But let me ask you a simple question. Where does the true origin of prayer come from? The Spirit of God. The spirit of God prompts prayer. Nobody would want to talk to God if his spirit didn't prompt us to communicate with him. The Bible says his spirit bears witness with our spirit. The Bible says that Romans 8, his Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray. And the spirit intercedes through us, even with groanings that we can't even utter in words. So I tell you what happened here. God's wrath was justifiably about to be poured out upon the nation. And God, because he's merciful and his mercy endures forever, was looking for a just way, because he's a righteous God, to not have to punish his people. 
So by his spirit, he moved upon a sensitive servant of the Lord and prompted that servant of the Lord because God is also a prayer answering God. And God knew, remember, just like with Abraham, if they ask me to spare, it gives me a reason to spare them. It gives me a reason to then answer that prayer in mercy. So it's not God being a hothead and Moses being such a faithful, compassionate prayer warrior and being the hero of the story. What it is, is God not wanting to judge his people. And God says, if I could just find one person to stand in the gap. Exodus 22 talks about that all God needs is a man, not a ministry, not a movement, just a man. God said, I'm just looking for a man, one intercessor, one man, one woman to be an intercessor. God says, I don't want to judge. I don't want to punish. And so by his spirit, he moves the heart of Moses. Moses responsively starts praying and pleading, and it gives God a perfect opportunity to say, fantastic. I was just waiting for you to ask me that. Now I can answer that. Now I have a just basis to answer the prayer of my servant and I don't have to judge the people, I can turn away my wrath. So again, so important when we recognize intercessory prayer, is it powerful? Is it something God works through? Absolutely. But folks, as, as God's people, we're just participants in the process. We just get to be willing participants if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with us other than our obedience to do what God's asked us to do, to pray, to intercede. And God loves to answer that and honor that with great power. Verse 24, then they despised, after God did that again, they spared them. They despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word. Again, they fall back into unbelief. This is Kadesh Barnea typically here now. But complained in their tents. They did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised up his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness to overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. And they join themselves also, verse 28, it says, to Baal of Peor and the sacrifices they made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. This is referring to the time when, remember, King Balak wanted to curse the nation of Israel and he hired Balaam, this bizarre character in the old testament he's kind of an enigma and he said look i i want you to curse the people he said i can't curse the people god will only bless them and he said look i'll, I'll give you money and for greedy profit he said okay I'll, I'll try and so multiple times remember he tried and curse the people of god balaam wanted every time he tried to curse them a blessing came out of his mouth and ultimately balaam said to Balak, i don't know what to tell you their god is too strong he won't curse them. He wants to bless them. I don't know what else to tell you. But then he said, but I do have one idea. God won't curse them, but you can get them to curse themselves if you just get them to sin against their God. Just get them to rebel against God. God doesn't want to curse them, but they can curse their own lives by sinful acts and rebellion and disobedience. They'll bring a curse upon themselves. They'll bring consequences upon themselves. So he said, here's what you do. Take some of your most beautiful little Midianite babes and send them there into the camp and have them whistle and wave and say, hey, you want to come and worship our gods later this evening with us and seduce them through sexual arousal and, and you'll get them to engage in sexual sin and idolatry and God will have no other recourse than to have to discipline them and they'll bring a curse upon themselves. And that's, of course, what they did. Ultimately, they brought that 
plague upon themselves as it broke out because of their sin and following through with those things and the idolatry. And then verse 30 says, Phineas, remember that righteous man stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations. Numbers 25 describes how when in a brazen way, this Midianite woman was brought into the camp and nobody did anything about it. Nobody would stand up for righteousness. Nobody would call sin, sin. And he just kind of brazenly paraded this Midianite gal through the camp and went into his tent to go have relations with her. And Phineas at that point was so vexed with righteous anger and his spirit was so disturbed. It literally says he went in with a javelin and he thrust that javelin right through the two of their bodies as an act of saying, if nobody else will stand against sin, I will stand against sin because it dishonors God and what is wrong is wrong. And if no one else in the entire camp or congregation will stand up for righteousness, I will. And in this righteous act, the plague was stopped. And it was something that God honored as someone stood up for righteousness. Look, don't ever discount when God sets before you an occasion where you're the person like Phineas, who's supposed to have a spiritual backbone and stand up for righteousness. God will honor that. And I tell you, those kind of times are going to come. They're going to come in your Christian life. They're going to come in your family. They're going to come in different situations. There have been times where by the grace of God, I have known that the Lord has been prompting me to say, look, I don't care if anyone else stands with you or not. You do what's right and you do what's righteous. And I'll honor that. And those are the times, like with Phineas, with that zeal for righteousness, we may be the one who perhaps steers things in a way that ends up benefiting everyone by taking those kind of stands. Verse 32, then again, they turned and angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them. So again, members, they began to complain once again there. It went ill with Moses because they rebelled against his spirit so that he, Moses, spoke rashly with his lips. So notice the sins of the people, stumbled now Moses and his weakness they rebelled against God's spirit they were complaining again and on another occasion in the wilderness they were thirsty it's hard out here it's hot out here and they started griping and complaining and Moses misrepresenting the Lord and in a moment of weakness as a leader it went ill with him as they were rebelling against God's spirit and he spoke rashly with his lips and remember God told Moses on that occasion to just speak to the rock and water would come out. The first time they were complaining and thirsty, God told Moses, strike the rock, and Moses struck the rock, and water came out. The second time, it sort of repeated itself. He said, Moses, just speak to the rock, and water will come out. And Moses, in his anger, became so upset and frustrated, he just snapped in his anger and his impulsive response and reaction rather than responding in a godly way under self-control. And remember, he struck the rock when you people and he started striking the rock and God still supplied water but then God said Moses come here a minute you misrepresented me Moses I'm not angry at these people they're weak human beings Moses they've been complaining for 40 years what's new <laughs> you're angry I Moses I've been raising kids for generations you misrepresented me as, as an angry upset individual and and Moses you're a leader and your misrepresentation of me before the people as a leader. Remember, the consequence was severe. He lost the opportunity to enter into the promised land. His whole life dream, he'd been leading him for 40 years to get into the promised land. And God retracted that blessing 
and that opportunity away from him as a severe consequence of misrepresenting the Lord. Look, when we have roles of leadership and greater responsibility, the severity of consequences for sin is much higher. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And God help us. And, and, and God help the shame it is when those who have positions of leadership do grievous and sinful things and they do not experience a degree of severity in the consequence of what wrong things they do. Because the impact when leaders sin is much, much higher. James 3 says not many should be teachers because they'll undergo a stricter judgment. And God had no problem bringing a stricter judgment against Moses because of the grievousness of the impact, because he was a leader among the people. And again, there was no way for him. But well, they rebelled against your spirit. God acknowledges here. They rebelled against my spirit, but it went ill with you and you spoke rashly with your mouth. And because Moses did what he did, God severely judged him for this great mistake that he made. And verse 34 says, they did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded. Now that's when they were in the land. They didn't put to death. Remember the Canaanites and the people, they were supposed to, to deal with them. They were supposed to be God's instrument to bring judgment upon these very horrific pagan practices that were going on for 400 years in that land. But instead they mingled with the Gentiles. That is, they began to intermingle in relationships with the ungodly. And they were becoming unequally yoked and they were taking on the behaviors and beginning to participate in sin because the ungodly were drawing them down as they mingled with the Gentiles. They learned their works and that's always what happens. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Notice it caused the people of God to compromise and that's why God doesn't want us to mingle in close relationship with those who are not living godly lives as we are because it will only cause us to behave as they behave and to become a snare for us spiritually as it was for them. Verse 37, they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Boy, that's strong, isn't it? But that was part of their practice of worship. They would offer their children in the fire, but it was actually a, a offering, a worship of demons. And what was this demon worship involved? Shedding innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. So they became guilty of shedding innocent blood by offering their children in sacrificial ways, putting to death their children, shedding the blood of their own children to somehow curry favor with these Canaanite gods. That is, they had lost any sense of appreciation for the value and the sanctity of human life. I mean, it takes a lot. It takes a lot. And notice, sacrifice to demons, because it truly takes, I personally believe, it truly takes a, a demonic deception to bring a person to such a desperate place where they would be willing to do that with their own child, their own offspring. It truly is a demonic deception because the devil wants to rob, kill, and destroy. God's the author of life. And so sad and tragic, even when abortion happens in today's day and age, it is truly just the lie of the devil, the lie of the devil, the lie of demons to convince people in a vulnerable moment that the best thing to do is to eliminate a pregnancy, to put an end to a life. And again, because that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to rob, kill and destroy life, not just the life of the conceived child 
but the life of the poor victimized woman or the father in the pregnancy and the pain and the trauma and the suffering that's attached to that. And, and he says, when this goes on in a nation as it was in that nation, the land, he says, verse 30, becomes polluted with blood. Wow, that's strong language how God sees things because remember, God judges time morally and our land in the United States of America in a similar manner is becoming polluted with innocent blood. Polluted with innocent blood. Therefore, verse 40 says, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance. He gave them into the hand of the Gentiles and those who hated them and ruled over them. This would be the time of the judges when different people groups would conquer them. The Philistines and the different individual nations around them would conquer them. And then God would raise up a judge or a ruler to deliver them. Their enemies would oppress them. They were brought in subjection under their hand. And many times, verse 43, notice, many times God delivered them, but then they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. So God would deliver them. They'd do well for a while, right? And then they would just go back into their pattern of sin again, like a cycle. And they would become vulnerable. Their enemy would conquer them and God would raise up a deliverer when they'd cry out. And there was that cycle in a time when the nation was all doing what was right in their own eyes. Verse 44, nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. That is, he saw the pain they were in. God's heart was broken, even though they had brought that pain into their life. God's so compassionate. He saw their affliction. He heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. The idea is there's a whole lot of his mercies. He also made them to be pitied by, call, by all those who carried them away captive. Of course, referring to even the time when they were brought into the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the psalmist wisely concludes praying this, as we all should, save us, O Lord our God. He knows the propensity to turn away. Save us, Lord. Save us from ourselves. Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, here's your part, amen and praise the Lord. Let's stand together.